Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Dennis Waters, a lichenologist. Lichens are those crusty green, yellow, brown, or other colored composite organisms that live on rocks and trees. I say composite because they are fungi living with photosynthetic green algae or cyanobacteria in a mutualistic symbiotic relationship, and we unpack what all of that means in the episode. I've known Dennis for a while, and I learned from interviewing him that there aren't many lichenologists out there, so I feel very fortunate to have known one and to have him on the show. Lichens are one of those organisms or well, holobionts, that we walk by every day and probably don't take much time to notice. But you've all seen many lichens, and maybe now you'll give them a little more attention. And as Dennis explains in this episode, there is so much we can learn from them. I won't spoil too much, but we cover everything from symbiosis to climate change to lichens living in space dangling off the International Space Station. Or I guess they're not really dangling because there's not gravity, but whatever. Hanging, floating, something. Anyway, (laughs) oh, we also talk about what they taste like. Lichens are not microscopic, so they almost break the rules of this podcast, but since the algae or cyanobacteria living inside the fungi are microscopic, and as Dennis explains, we often need to do microscopy to make identifications of different species, we are counting them as microbes today. This episode is a good one, and it is your rare chance to hear from an actual lichenologist. So get excited. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here with Dr. Dennis Waters, who is a lichenologist and author. Welcome, Dennis. How's it going? It is going well, Julia. Thank you very much for having me on your fine podcast. Of course. Before we start, could you give a summary of your background and talk a little bit about what you currently do? Sure. Well, I'm currently retired. I had had a career as an internet publisher and I'm a visiting scientist at Rutgers University, and I've been studying the lichens of central New Jersey for about the last 15 years or so. And before that, I've had done various things. I do have a PhD in advanced technology. That's awesome. And so what are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about lichens. And lichens are an underappreciated but extremely interesting group of organisms. And there's a lot to be said about them because I think they represent a lot of interesting avenues for research. And there's a lot of things going on in biology in general that are illustrated in the world of lichens. Cool. And so I guess to start at the very basics, what is a lichen? Well, a lichen is, uh, well... (laughs) with the hardest question of all. You know, okay. most, most organisms, it's like, what is a moose? There's a moose. What's a horseshoe crab? There's a horseshoe crab. What is a lichen? Well, it's not that easy to say. What a, a lichen is basically a fungus. 
it is a lifestyle of a fungus. So, you know, we know fungi can live in all kinds of situations, and these lichens are fungi that have incorporated into their very being some kind of a photosynthetic organism, typically uh, an alga of some kind or possibly a cyanobacterium. So these fungi, you know, most, what, what is the old saying? Uh, animals ingest their food, plants make their food, and fungi live in their food. Mm. But unlike other fungi that live in their food, the lichens incorporate their food within them. So they have these algae living within them, kind of the same way that a cell would have a chloroplast or something like that. It's a symbiotic relationship. And then these algae produce sugars that the fungus can take advantage of. So a lichen is a way of being, and it's not necessarily an organism as such, because it's at minimum two organisms. There's a fungus, and there's also its photosynthetic partner. Just uh, I'll probably use the term photobiont as we go along, and photobiont is simply the partner in the symbiosis that does the photosynthesis and produces the sugars. Great. And I know you mentioned it's at least two organisms, and I think I'll ask more about that later. But first, where can we find lichens? What do they look like? Well, it's probably easier to say where you can't find lichens okay. than it is to say where you can find them because they occupy virtually every terrestrial habitat on Earth. So they're not aquatic. Well, some of them are. <laughs> but most of them are not. What's the saying in biology? In biology, every rule has an exception including the rule that in biology, every rule has an exception. So they are largely terrestrial, and they live within a temperature range that's probably the greatest of any other organism. So there's about a 100 degrees Celsius temperature swing within which they can live. So that goes down to about minus 50 in Antarctica, where they live, in some very dry areas of Antarctica, and all the way up to maybe uh, plus 60 or maybe even a little more than that in some desert environments. The lichens can live in a very, very wide range of habitats. While they're generally not aquatic, there are certain lichens that will live on the seashore, that will live on rocks that are getting uh, splashed by salt water and that kind of thing. So some of them are also very salt tolerant. So lichens are generally found living on trees, on the bark of trees, or on rocks. Those are the two main habitats that they live on. And most of the ones that we see with the naked eye are usually maybe a few inches in diameter. So these are the splotchy things that you see growing on rocks or growing on tree bark. Some will grow on all kinds of things, man-made surfaces and things. My car. I've had a lichen growing on the ski rack on my car. I absolutely believe that. (laughs) I've got a very nice lichen growing on my driveway. Nice. Um, Lichens occupy somewhere between 7 and 8% of the land surface of the planet. Wow. Which seems like a lot, but most of it is in places that we don't see them. So that's why this is usually a surprising statistic, because as you go north, say, into areas of tundra, the land is simply covered with light. Virtually every square inch would lichen, and that can go on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of square miles. During the winter time, north of the Arctic Circle, where it's snowy and all the vascular plants are quite dead or dormant, the caribou and the reindeer there will eat lichen. That's how they get through the winter. They fall through the snow and they eat the lichen. They don't thrive on lichen, but they do manage to survive on lichen. 
So in some of those habitats, or if you get up into alpine areas up on mountains and there's lots of rocks, you'll see the rocks will be covered with lichen and nothing else. No vascular plants will be growing there. So they tend to occupy a lot of places where nothing else will grow. And that's one of the reasons that they, they occupy as much of the land surface of the earth as they do. That's really interesting. And I'm assuming there's different species of fungi that become lichens and there's different algae. I know it's like usually green algae and there's different cyanobacteria that can become the photobiont. Are these organisms things that like on their own when they're not lichens live in those environments? Or is it when they become lichens that they're more able to tolerate the top of a mountain or something? A fine question. Yes, these are organisms that only can survive in these environments when they are with their partners. Lichens, as a general rule for both the photobiont and for the fungus, it's an obligate symbiosis. It means that they really do need each other. The fungus will not thrive, for the most part, without its algal partner, and the algal partner, the photobiont, will not thrive without the fungus. Fungus basically provides protection from ultraviolet rays, from desiccation, predation, and so forth. So that's the benefit for the photobiont is it's, it has a nice place to live. And uh, the benefit to the fungus is that it gets all the sugar for free. Okay. And so has a lot of research been done on how this relationship evolved initially? Do we know anything about that? We don't know a lot. I mean, lichenology as a science doesn't have a lot of practitioners, so the unanswered questions far outnumber the answered questions about lichens at this point. But it is thought that the lichen condition evolved independently at least 10 times mm. among certain fungal lineages. And if you go across all of the fungi, so most lichens, not all lichens, but most lichens are ascomycetes. And I think there are about 60 or 70,000 known species of ascomycete, and of those, about 20,000 are like. The lichens are maybe third of the species in that group of fungi, but it's really spread across the entire fungal tree of life. Some lineages will have both lichenized and non-lichenized members within the same clade. And so it's something that they, they kind of pick up along the way. In some cases, they've abandoned it. So there is evidence that oh. there have been lichens in the past that have gone their separate ways with the photobiont going off to live independently and the fungus going off to live independently as well. And so when something becomes a lichen, what exactly happens? Because I know another famous example of a, like a mutualistic symbiosis is coral reefs. And obviously, when a host and a symbiont evolve together over time, and you said it's an obligate symbiosis, so they become much more dependent on each other. Like, what exactly is happening, I guess, in the genome or just behaviorally? Like, what's going on? Well, I think you're asking a question about reproduction, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. And how do you, how do you, how do, how do these things get started? I mean... You know, in, in the living world, reproduction is a problem for anything, and it's twice the problem if you've got two things that have to reproduce because they have an obligate relationship. So with lichens, they're fungi, and virtually all lichens can reproduce sexually. That is, they can produce spores. The problem with a lichenized fungus sending a spore out into the world is that they have to get real lucky. In other words, that spore has got to land somewhere where it can find 
a photo bion partner there that just happens to be lying around mm. maybe in a dormant state or something and uh, and can incorporate that and get another lichen going so you can imagine that the odds of that are not all that great but they also produce a truckload of spores so it does happen and it does work other lichens have figured out a way to reproduce asexually in that they produce little packets what are called vegetative propagules that include a little bit of photobiont essentially in a shell of fungus. I sort of think of them as like little Tootsie Roll pops <laughs> with, the, with the photobiont in the middle and the fungus wrapped around it. And these things can sort of float off into the environment. They get carried off by insects. They can get blown away, washed away, that kind of thing to go part a new lichen elsewhere. So that's, that's how they keep going. How the, uh, the symbiosis originated, we really don't know. I mean, it has been going on for a long time. There's some evidence that the first lichen symbiosis was maybe 400 million years ago. Wow. There are lichens that have been found uh, preserved in amber, so they're actually fossilized lichens. So they have, they've really been around for a very long time, but the actual genesis of the lichenized condition is not known. 400 million years ago is like not long after land was colonized right yeah wow mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. as long as there have been organisms living on land there have probably been lichens that's really cool as a matter of fact there is a theory which is speculative and for which there is no evidence but it's a nice theory that in fact the lichen or a lichen-like relationship a symbiosis of this kind was actually the bootstrap that helped to get green plants onto the land Words. Hmm. What the fungus does for the photobiont, obviously, is it provides it protection from things like salt spray and excessive ultraviolet and desiccation and all those sorts of things, which are all the conditions that, that the photobiont would have encountered when it first came out of the water to live on the land. So it would be a, an interesting possibility that this was, in fact, a bootstrap that involved a, a symbiosis. That is really interesting because I know there's still a lot of unknowns around the evolution of land plants and a lot of the jumps that occurred from green algae to like multicellular plants. So that's really interesting. Okay, this is something I really want to ask about. So last week I had Kristen on who is a fungal expert and she brought up the this new idea that lichens aren't just two partners. There's a third partner and that third partner is yeast. Can you talk more about that? The nature of the lichen has undergone changes throughout history. Linnaeus thought that lichens were algae, mm. so going back that far. And then they were basically thought of as plants. And it wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that a guy called Schwendener came up with the idea that it was a symbiosis. That you had two things that were living together. It took a very, very long time for that idea to be accepted. In fact, the guy who is generally considered to be the patriarch of lichenology in North America, who's Edward Tuckerman, never believed it. He went to his grave not believing in the symbiosis. And so for many years, that was basically what was thought. I mean, there was, there, you know, people have found different strains of bacteria that, that are commonly found on lichens. And so we know that there are bacteria involved, but whether that's an obligate relationship or just a relationship of convenience is not known. We don't know how they're involved metabolically. And then just a few years ago, it was found that there are some yeasts from Basidiomyces that are living with many lichens and are actually incorporated into the body of the lichen, it's called the thallus of the lichen. And so now it's pretty clear that it takes a village to make a lichen. 
quite a lot going on here. Many unanswered questions exactly how these eaves incorporate themselves, but that does seem to be, at least in some cases, an obligate relationship that can have an effect on the chemistry and some of the, uh, the morphology of the lichen itself. So yeah, there's a lot of things going on living within the lichen. You've got the two main players, which are the fungus and the photobion, but then you have these yeasts and you have these bacteria as well. Okay. I think the more people research, whether it's symbiosis or endosymbiosis, this idea of a third partner always comes up the more they look into it genomically. And I, I think that's really interesting. Humans are just so funny because you were saying that people have just assumed they were plants, which makes sense hundreds of years ago. But even when I was doing some basic Googling before this podcast, lichens are written about online as, oh, they're plant-like structures, they're plant-like funguses, but they existed, both the fungus and the, the algae existed and existed maybe together, before plants even existed. And yet, like, our only frame of reference is just to compare them to plants, which I think is kind of funny. Well, that's, I think that's the way they look, is they kind of look, well, they, most of them look like plants. The ones that you tend to see with the naked eye that are quite visible living on trees and rocks, those lichens do kind of look like plants. The, there are three sort of three major growth forms for lichens, Old folios, which are the big sort of flat ones, and folios means leaf-like. So they do look like leaves. They look like they have leaves. They don't. Those aren't leaves. Those are lobes, but but they do look that way. And then you've got fruticos, which are the ones that have a little more dimensionality to them that kind of go 3D, not just flat. And so those lichens do, you know, the, the even the names of the growth forms are taken from botanical vocabulary, folios and fruticos. The other kind, the uh, main kind, is crustose. These are what are called the microlichens. Mm. Ruticotes and folios would be macrolichens, and then the microlichens would be the crustose ones, which are in many cases much harder to see and where you, you, you really need a microscope. Yeah, I'm just so anti plants and animals. I feel like if we were more fungus minded, we would be calling different plants lichen like plants. I don't know, but I get why we've humans cared about plants first. Can you talk a little bit about how you work with lichens? Like I know you go out and you you look for new lichens and you're part of these lichen societies. Can you just talk a little bit about being a naturalist who focuses on lichens? Well, sure. One of the nice things about lichens compared to studying just about anything else, certainly compared to studying animals, I mean, lichens don't anywhere so you know <laughs> and they're right there in front of you and compared to, to vascular plants lichens are there all the time they're something that you can go collect and study out in the field 12 months a year and actually their reproduction process the production of spores has no phenology to it it, it just basically goes on you know 12 months a year <laughs> so there's no seasonality to when they produce their fruiting bodies so what i'm involved in and it's kind of surprising, really, that a place like New Jersey, which is where I am and where you are, which is, you know, right between Philadelphia and New York, which both have long histories of botanical and natural history research and have great museums and universities and all that kind of thing. You would think that the state that is situated directly between them would have been picked over pretty cleanly for just about any kind of living organism there was. 
but in looking at New Jersey, we we determined that in fact the large parts of New Jersey have hardly had any lichen studied at all, including my home county, which is where I started this work uh, some years ago. I think there were only about 50 specimen lichens from, from here that were in any of the uh, lichen herbaria in North America. And so that kind of got me interested in going out to collect them here. And lichen biodiversity is an interesting question, particularly in times of climate change. But in terms of going out into the field, basically, you go out and you collect lichens, you find them and you collect samples, because everything that I collect goes into the herbarium at the New York Botanical. So they have uh, they have all of the lichen. And that's the largest collection of lichens in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. New York Botanical Gardens. And one of the things about lichens compared to a lot of other things that people might be interested in seeing when they go out into the woods is that you can't always identify a lichen based on just what it looks like out in the field the way you could maybe a butterfly or a flower. In many cases, you have to take the lichen and you have to bring it back to a laboratory and then study it, usually using a microscope. In many cases, the way that you tell what group a lichen belongs to, you actually need to look at the spores. Mm. So one of the, the, the fruiting body of a lichen is where the spores are produced. And that's usually a very small thing. It's usually may, maybe not even a millimeter in diameter. So you have to go in and you have to look at it under a dissecting microscope uh, with a razor blade and you make a section of that. And then you take that and you look at it under compound microscope to have a look at the spores and what color are the spores, what shape are the spores, and how many cells are in the spores, and how big are they, and all those kinds of questions will help you to determine what group that lichen belongs to. And then you can use keys to kind of figure out what it is. I mean, the other thing that you would do to figure out what a lichen is, is, is chemistry. If you think about, who was the guy who wrote the book, or, or wrote, it wasn't a book, it was a paper. What is it like to be a bat? I always thought that was a great title for what is it like to be a bat? But anyway, what is it like to be a lichen? I mean, can you imagine living your whole life splayed against the side of a tree, completely unable to defend yourself against anything that wants to come along? You've got all these nice, juicy uh, photobiont cells just living within you, and they make a nice snack for somebody who wants to eat those. And so what lichens have done is that they have developed a lot of chemical defenses. Mm. And so there are a lot of what are called secondary metabolites, weird chemicals. Many of them are found only in lichen that can help to identify what lichen you're looking at. In many cases, there may be two lichens that if you just hold them in your hand side by side and say, which one is which, they look identical. But if you start to study their chemistry, then they actually can be quite different because one might have a certain set of chemicals, the other one might have a different set of anyway that's that's what you do you go out and you collect and study the things you try to put names on them and then they go into, into a herbarium for further study in the future and there are you know vast parts of the united states certainly where there has been very little collecting done there's much that is still not known about lichens yeah that's cool i, I hope more people start going out and looking for them because i i think there's so many different types of organisms that need better cataloging and need more people to care about them, which segues me into algae. I know a lot of algae people listen to this podcast, so I was wondering if you know off the top of your head the names of the algal partners in lichens. 
The vast majority of the algal partners are either in the Trabuxia group or the Tredipolia group. Okay. So those would be the, the green algae. There are a few others, but those account for, I think, something like 60 or maybe more percent of the uh, photobionts that are algae. Then among the cyanobacteria, the primary photobiont would be Nostoc, okay. uh, which is a chain-forming uh, uh, cyanobacterium. Now, Tredipolia is often found free-living, so that is a group that has free-living members. The Trabuxia is almost exclusively a lichenized alga. In other That's words, cool. it, it, the only place it lives generally is in that symbiotic relationship with the fungus. And there are probably 100 to 200 known species of photobiont, which you compare with 20,000 known species of fungus. So you, you realize that there's quite a lot of duplication. A given alga can, can certainly partner with a lot of different fungi in order to create the symbiosis. Again, there's always exceptions to every rule. The general rule is that one fungal species will only partner with one algal species or a group of closely related algae. But that's not always the case. There are cases in which, for example, one fungus can go with a green alga and create one shape and then partner with a cyanobacterium instead and create a completely different shape. That's so or interesting. A completely different color of the lichen. In fact, there are some groups of lichens where they can have both within the same lichen thallus. So you, parts of it might have a cyanobacterial partner and some of it might have an algal partner. Hmm, that's really cool. You mentioned earlier something about climate change and that lichens are important in climate change. Could you elaborate? One thing that, that you have to take into consideration, given the fact that they cover 70 out of the Earth's surface, is that they are in an enormous carbon sink. So their ability to take CO2 out of the air and sequester it is dramatic. So to the lichens thrive, that, that helps to reduce the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But it's interesting in that some lichens, you know, we talked about the lichens that live under these very stressful conditions. In fact, there was the lichen thoria group, which are the sort of orange lichens that sometimes you see by the seashore. Yeah. Um, yeah, the xanthorias. There was some xanthoria that was taken up to the International Space Station and was put in a little cage kind of contraption. And it was hung outside the International Space Station, that is, outside the space station in space for 18 months. Whoa. And when they pulled it back in, about 60% of it was able to recover and, and begin growing again. And that same group, Xanthoria, they have found herbarium specimens that have been tucked away for hundreds of years that all they, they give them a little bit of light and a little bit of moisture and they come back. So some of these lichens are extremely robust. I mean, it's likely that if, if any terrestrial organism could survive on Mars, it would be a lichen. But on the other hand, some of them are exquisitely sensitive to air quality, to habitat disturbance. The uh, U.S. Forest Service actually uses lichens for biomonitoring. Mm. So they're used to assess forest health, biomass, and the diversity of lichen species. Because there are some species of lichen that simply cannot survive if there's too much sulfur dioxide. So there are whole groups of lichens that the Industrial Revolution wiped out mm -hmm. in, uh, in England. There was so much sulfur dioxide in the air. 
And as air quality has improved, the lichens have started to come back a little bit. So you do have these certain species that, that will only grow in old growth forests that have been stable for hundreds of years. There are, for example, there's been a lot of research done. Uh, one of my collaborators, James Lendemer at the New York Botanical Garden, done a lot of research on the South Atlantic coastal plain, the lichen species there. There's an area in the eastern part of North Carolina where the entire environment is only a few inches above sea level. And there have been a large number of lichen species. It's considered to be a biodiversity hotspot for lichens. Lots of species that have been identified there including a lot of things uh, new to science, but only going to take a couple of inches of sea level rise to completely destroy that habitat, and then what is going to happen to the lichens? Lichens have never been particularly amenable to cultivation. That was so going to be my next question. <laughs> so they're trying to figure out how they can take lichens that are living in these threatened habitats and move them places where they might have a better chance of long-term survival. So there is some research being done in these areas. And in general, the Appalachians, not just for lichens, are a refuge because after the Ice Age, when the glaciers receded, there were a lot of cold-adapted species that were living on the tops of these mountains. And as everything warmed up below, they got stuck up there. They managed to live up there, but as the temperatures continue to get warmer and warmer, those habitats are going to be threatened as well. And, and lichens, as I said before, are particularly suited to living at high elevations. Yeah, that's all really interesting to think about. I was just in Arizona and I got back last night. And first of all, I mean, I've been to Arizona before, but I've never really seen Arizona. And it has like so many different types of habitats. And I saw so many lichens. I saw lichens living on cacti. I saw lichens living on trees. I was in Phoenix and Sedona and everywhere in between. So low altitude to mountains and there was just lichens everywhere. And there were some pretty colored ones that I don't feel like I've seen in New Jersey. And I was excited that I was going to have you on the day I get back because I was thinking a lot about lichens this past week. Well, there are, I mean, there there is, in, in North America, there are roughly 5,000 known lichen species. I just got back from Alabama, so we had what's called the Tuckerman Workshop, which happens once or twice a year, and lichenologists come in from all over the country to visit a particular area where there should be a lot of lichen diversity and where they haven't been studied very much. In this case, into the uh, the Gulf Coast. And I can tell you that the lichens, if you were to make a Venn diagram of the lichens in southern Alabama versus the lichens in New Jersey, I would say that there's very, very, very little overlap. That's so most cool. of the things down there that I saw and helped collect and try to figure out what they were are things that I would would not know from here. So it's, it's funny, the area that you're in, you can get very familiar with local flora and kind of know where things are and what lives where and, and identify a lot of things when you're out in the field. But you go to some other place that has a different habitat and you really don't know anything. And so the West would be like that. I mean, I've done a little bit of collecting in the Mojave Desert. And again, none of those lichens, especially those ones that live on rocks, you won't see any of those in this area in, in New Jersey. That's exciting then to go to a new place. And you said there's over 5,000 known species. You said in America or North America? North America. In North America. How many do you think remain unknown? <laughs> well, it's always, it's hard to tell. I mean, you, there is an online lichen database. You 
go to that database and you can look up different species and you, what's been collected in different locations. And there are so few lichenologists. I mean, the number of people who actually earn their living doing nothing but studying lichen professionally is very small. In North America, at least, you can count them on one hand, maybe two. And there are a fair number of what you'd call curious amateur. There's a lot of collector bias, what it's called where uh, an area gets very well studied only because there was a lichenologist there. So in the future, people are going to find a lot of lichens that have been collected and studied from central New Jersey, where I live, and that's just because that's where I live. Mm -hmm. Not because there's necessarily more lichens here or anything like that. Again, there are big areas where the lichens are not known, and, and so they're constantly being new lichen species being identified, even in North America. It's either a combination of things that were not known in North America that are known elsewhere that are discovered here or things that are new to science. So like I said, my colleague at the New York Botanical Garden, I don't have a total tally of how many new species he has identified in North America, but it's hundreds. Is there a lot of genomic research being done now? There is, and that's actually been quite interesting. And again, again if you want to talk about myth-busting, then uh, the, I do. the genomic I always, I always do. <laughs> the uh, genomic research has been a big piece of that. Among other things, it was it was generally thought that if you look at a lichen, you know, you see a little round lichen on a tree, maybe it's three inches in diameter, you figure that's it's a fungus and that's just the one fungus. But when they get into genotyping these things, they find that there's actually several different individuals. So they're not all the same genotype. It's the same species, but you may have different members of that species all within the same lichen, which hmm. nobody ever realized. Well, that was like very weird, Boom, that it would all be the same thing, but it's not necessarily. So that's one thing that has come out of it, as well as a lot of the information concerning the uh, the photobiont and the relationship with the photobiont. So the, the fact that it's maybe two or three different species of photobiont might work with a particular fungus was really not fully understood until genomics came along. Okay. I have a couple fun questions. Um, oh. <laughs> do you have a favorite lichen or one that you really want to find? I don't know about one I really want to find. I always, there's a group of cyanolichens called Peltigera. And in some areas, they're fairly common, but in this part of the mid-Atlantic, they really aren't. So I always get pretty excited when I see a nice Peltigera. It's a big charismatic macro lichen with big lobes, and it's got a, a cyanobacterial ion. They're really quite distinctive. They only live in places that are relatively wet. Cool. Also, have you ever eaten a lichen? I have. Um, <laughs> what was lichens, it like? <laughs> well, it, it has an earthy taste. Lichens, generally people don't eat them. They are part of the diet in the Nordic countries. I have had lichen served to me at a restaurant in Finland. Huh. And they are actually used quite a bit in South Asian cooking. So they're used as an herb. And so if you go to a South Asian supermarket, a Patel Brothers or something like that, you'll probably be able to find a jar of dried lichen. Huh. They call it stone flower. That's the translation. And the species is Armotrema perlatum. But yeah, it's used in some cuisine, but it's not generally a major part of it diet. You, you can eat it, however. And and I should say as well that unlike other groups of fungi, there are no lichens that will kill you if you eat them. Oh, well, that's good. When you ate it in Finland, do they cook it? Like, how is it prepared? 
Generally, they boil it, make it a little bit softer. Okay, yeah. There's actually a, there's actually a restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey, that produced a dessert using lichen. I've seen a which, picture of it. I've which never restaurant? Tried. I love Princeton restaurants. Uh, it's called Elements. Okay, I'm going to go there. It's a big, big award-winning restaurant, uh, very fine dining. Uh-huh. Uh, but they sort of boiled it to soften it up, and then they dipped it in white chalk. Interesting. But it'll be good, right? That's so cool. And then oh, I had another question about this. <laughs> I love the idea of eating them. Oh, so like in Finland, is it a delicacy or is it something that people are just eating all the time? Um, well, I wouldn't call it a delicacy because it's all over the place. Sure. So it's not like a truffle or a caviar or something like that. Okay. It's very rare. It's certainly not a rare thing. I don't think people are eating it all the time. Okay. It may actually be more presented for the tourist than for the locals. Sure. Interesting. Okay. Well, is there anything about lichens we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about? I've run out of questions. Oh, dear. Um... Well, I would just say the thing about lichens is that you just need to keep your eyes open mm-hmm. um, because it's very easy to, to sort of walk by a tree that's covered with blotches of lichen and think, well, there's that and just walk on by. But if you stop and take a look, of, especially if you've got a little hand lens, and you can look closely at what's there. You may find that there are uh, eight or 10 or 12 different species of lichens that are growing on one particular surface. So they're out there. there, There's a lot of diversity and something small that you can learn to appreciate. Oh, I do have one more question. Are they ever harmful to trees? Other fungi, as I learned last week, you know, can totally infect and destroy trees. Like if a tree is covered in lichens, is that bad? Generally not. Okay. That's a pretty common question. And the question kind of gets the causality backward. Mm. Generally what happens is if a tree is not healthy, Uh. then it doesn't produce as as many leaves. And if it's not leafed out fully, it means that more light can get to the trunk and to the branches. And if more light gets to the trunk and to the branches, that improves the habitat for the lichens, which need the light for photosynthesis. So the lichens can be a symptom of a tree that is not healthy, but they are not causing the tree to be unhealthy. Now, the case with rocks is a very different matter because lichens growing on rocks over time turn the rocks into soil. Mm -hmm. So a, a lichen on a boulder you know, if you come back in 10,000 years, the boulder will be gone huh. thanks to the lichen. I mean, the only place that this turns, that this becomes a real problem, in, actually in graveyards, oh. in places like that where the lichens will grow on the gravestones and, and start to erode them away. And also even, you know, historical monuments, ruins of, of ancient Rome and Greece and that kind of thing, they have to power wash them and get the lichens off, otherwise they will, uh, they will gradually erode them. Huh. Well, I I think that's interesting how they can turn the rocks into soil other than destroying nice man-made rock-based things. That's a good and vital ecosystem function. I think it's cool that the lichens aren't poisonous to humans. They have their own mutualism. They're not like being parasites of trees. They're kind of just neutral and doing a good job living. I like it. Yes, exactly. We should all do so well. Yeah, seriously. So before we wrap up, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your book, 
It's called Behavior and Culture in One Dimension, Sequences, Affordances, and the Evolution of Complexity. Sure, I can certainly say a few words about that. This is not a book about lichen. No. It's about a book about evolution. If you think about genetics and you think about genomics in particular, you realize that there is a vocabulary in genetics that is borrowed from linguistics. So we talk about transcription mm-hmm. and we talk about translation and we talk about the genetic alphabet and all of these things. And, and you know, the list goes on and on and on. If you go to the glossary and the genomic book, you'll see all of the terms that are used in genetics and actually have their origins in linguistic. And that is because DNA in a cell is a sequence, a one-dimensional pattern of molecules, and the texts that we use, that we read, are one-dimensional patterns of letters in the alphabet, usually ink on paper, whatever it may be. And then you've got computers, which are sequences of one-dimensional patterns of zeros and ones. And so the question that I've been interested in for a very long time is, what do these types of sequences have in common? It's interesting that there was a time, if you go back, beginning of the Earth, when there were no sequences. Everything was just geophysics, geochemistry doing its thing. And then suddenly we're in this environment where we live, where everything is sequenced. We've got the sequences that orchestrate the living world, the DNA and and RNA. And we've got the sequences of speech and text that are responsible for human culture. And then we have the sequences of zeros and ones that run all of the technology. And this book is to try to develop a a general approach where we can look at these sequences not as different things, but as different examples of one kind of thing. And really how complex systems arise, how evolution takes place, context of all these different kinds of a wonderful book. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. This is a little different, but I've been working with this statistical technique to analyze genomes or metagenomes for foreign DNA, and it, the uh, the algorithm is taken from documents analysis. Like, it's taken from looking through, you know, documents in a document database to see, like, is this phrase or is this string less common in one document versus another. And it's super useful to genomics, but it originated from people just trying to go through archives and, you know, catalogs, writ- written stuff, old written stuff. Yeah, well, that's that's uh, that's a lot of the uh, a lot of the software tools that are used. Uh, I mean, the the uh, the historical linguists when they're, you know, they go back and they try to figure out an ancient language like Proto-European. What did it look like? All these languages have come out of it. So if you study the languages, you can kind of work your way backwards and try to figure out what that original language was like. And that's exactly what you're doing when you're going back and trying to find out what these ancestral genomes might look like. You're starting with what you've got today and then you're working your way backward. And the tools are exactly the same tools. And that's because Hey, they're all sequences. Exactly. The the sequences in our DNA are so much older than a written word, and yet to study them, we have to use tools that we use to understand our own written sequences. So that is really interesting. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If listeners want to follow you or your work, where can they find you? Well, the uh, best place to find me is probably on Twitter, at DP Waters. And the website that uh, has more information on the book and so forth is onedimensional.com, 
Uh, numeral one word dimensional.com. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it. <laughs> well, thank you, Julia. This is a great podcast. I'm happy you're doing that. And I'm very happy to have been a part of it. Thanks. That was such a great chat. Like some of my other recent guests, Dennis is a true naturalist. He goes outside and finds these lichens and figures out what they are, and all of his knowledge is backed up by these firsthand experiences. Knowing him for the past few years has made me much more interested in lichens myself, and I've even purchased a field guide so I can start figuring out how to identify them. If there's nothing else you get from this podcast, I hope you all just become more generally aware of the microbes and other organisms hanging out around you all the time. Like next time you pass a lichen, you know, take a look at it for a second and think, huh, cool, this is a lichen. And now for today's a cool microscopic or small thing I saw this week, where I highlight the work of others on social media. I recently discovered Franz Needle's account on Instagram, which is at f.neidl. He's a great microscopist with what seems to be a really nice microscope based on the quality of his photography, and everything he posts is truly awesome. I have never seen some of the dinoflagellates he's been posting recently, and they're some of the weirdest looking things ever. And don't worry, there will definitely be a dino episode of this podcast in the future. I'm working on it. But anyway, check out these pictures that I'm talking about. They're really cool. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes or the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. <laughs>